we have been talking not only about our inhale, exhale, take a breath sermon series, but we've also tried each week to give you something practical. What are ways in which we quiet our souls? Amen? We need to quiet our souls. There's a lot of noise and a lot of junk out there, and what do we do during those times when we're feeling anxious? Now, it's not that we quiet our souls, it's that we do certain practices and we discover that God does the work in our lives. So certainly, foremost of them all is reading scripture and prayer. There's no question, nothing compares to that, talking to God and listening to God. But we've heard some other things also. We had Priscilla, who shared with us a poem, and the poem is out on our our inhale-exhale table. And if you haven't picked it up, take it. She's a woman who has Parkinson's and is not able to get out to worship, but she writes poetry, and she wrote us a beautiful poem for our sermon series. And we even give you a space on there to write your own poem, to, to try that as a way to sort of reflect and look at the world differently. Last week, Pastor Josie talked about going to the beach, and I know that resonated with a lot of people. I thought of sitting in a cornfield in North Dakota, because that's my beach. I'm sorry about that, but that's true. I can't do it quite as easily as you who live here in New England who can access the ocean, but for me as a kid growing up, that was always something I liked, just getting out in the country and see the big open spaces. But one of the things that I do when I'm stressed or when I'm trying to to detach is I've learned to take a topic and really study it. And that's interesting because my nephew and I will talk about that, how he'll do the same thing. And so we'll find these odd different things that, that we will just absorb ourselves into And it allows us to sort of forget other things. And that works very well for me. That's actually why I'm doing my Doctor of Ministry program. And I brought a couple of the books that I'm reading. Edwin Friedman, who is a Jewish rabbi who passed away, he does a lot of stuff on non-anxious presence. And people who knew him well finished his last book, and they call it A Failure of Nerve. And that's one of the books I was privileged to read recently. And the classes that I'm going to be taking these next couple of weeks. We're going to be talking about these and starting to work on my dissertation. Or here's another one that I was able to read this fall as part of my, my journey. It's called You Are What You Love, A Spiritual Power of Habit. And, and just looking at how the very things that we focus on really determine who we are as individuals and looking at some of the research that's been done around that allows me to detach from other things. Do you hear what I say? As I focus on that, then I can sort of detach from some of the stresses in life and absorb myself in the things that I care about. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody should go back to school, but you should learn practices in your life that I, like I have in my life. They're different for you, and you need to figure out what they are. What are the practices in your life that allow you at those times when you're stressed and you're feeling anxious and you're feeling concerned, what are the practices that you can develop? That's why Different ones of us are sharing different things about what works for us. It doesn't mean that what works for me will work for you, but how can you find the similar things in your life? Because that's how we want to start the year. Learning to breathe in grace, God's love, God's goodness, God's presence in our life, and exhale the negative stuff that's going on in our life, but also to live out that grace towards others. This morning, if you have your Bibles with you, We're continuing to look at stuff that we want to take into our lives, thoughts and beliefs. And the passage we're going to be looking at is Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. It's in the middle of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And we're looking at the question of where do you put your trust? 
It's not a, really a question of do you trust God, but where do you put your trust? Because a lot of people we discover talk about trusting God, but we put our trust in everything else in this world. Hear that concept loud and clear. A lot of times we talk about trusting God and then we grab our will back and we act like we don't trust God and we try to take control ourselves or we put our faith in something else and we wonder why it doesn't work for us. It's interesting, in October there was a poll that was done of Americans and we discovered that 51% of Americans had an optimistic view of the future and only 18% were feeling bleak about the future. That poll was redone in January, and now 21% of Americans feel optimistic about the future, and 58% are worried. Think about that. When you walk out of church today, the good chance if you see two people, either one or both of them, are stressed and worried about the future. The question for us is, because we can't control what other people do and where other people put their faith and their trust, how about you? Where is your security? What are you looking at to guarantee you that not only are you okay today, but you can optimistically walk into the future knowing that everything will be okay. Because you see, an optimism that relies on God and places our faith in God is not a denial of the things that we face. And we're going to see that this morning. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter to the Romans, certainly faced a lot of difficulties in his life. And in fact, in the end, he was martyred for his faith. He could have stayed content and satisfied just living as a, a Jewish Pharisee and a Roman citizen, but instead of doing that, he chose to put his faith in Christ, to live for God, and in the midst of that, he faced all kinds of tough stuff in his life, but he still was okay. And that's what we want to learn to have in our own lives. Paul wrote to the Philippians when he was in jail in another one of his letters. This was a letter that came after his letter to the Romans. And he said, I've learned this in life. To live is Christ and to die is gain. That was Paul putting life in perspective. Now the power of that statement literally means he discovered that if he was alive, he could do God's work. Praise God. God had work for him to do. But the worst that could happen to him is he would die and he'd be in heaven and he goes, I'll be better off. He even said, I'd feel better about going to heaven, but I've got work to do here, so I know God's going to keep me to do the work. You see, that's called perspective. That's not a denial of life in this world or a denial of what we do, but it's a realization that we are eternal beings and we are more than just the everyday mundane things that we get involved with or the worries and the constant things that seem to be so important in the moment. What Paul wants us to understand and what I'm hoping we can hear this morning as we ask ourselves where do we put our trust is that true security is found in God and only in God. And yes, I will take an amen to that. Amen. That's where true security is. Despite the fact that people keep thinking that everything else is going to make them feel secure, it never does. And Paul is very clear about this in his letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 7, he lays out the fact that on our own, we cannot change permanently. It's a great passage if you are going through a tough time and you're struggling with something and you're like, why can't I overcome this? Read Romans 7 and you'll see what the Scripture says to us about trying to do stuff on our own strength. Now, I do understand that there's a multi-billion dollar industry called the self-help industry in our country that tries to tell everybody, oh, you can do it all on your own? You know what's true about every one of those self-help books? They all fail because they lose 
the most important thing, that God brings a change in our life, not us. You can't toughen it out and just make changes. It's about grace and relying on God. That's what we were talking about last week. Then in chapter 8, Paul explains, as he goes on in this letter, how we can live a new way, a different way. And he talks about forgiveness and being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so what we start to discover is the reason that we can change in our life is because we're forgiven. We can get rid of that guilt and that shame. How many times do people not make changes because they're bound by the past? Oh, you don't understand, Pastor Stan. If you had done the stuff that I did, you would be mired in the same kind of guilt and frustration that I am. And so Paul makes it clear, no, you have to experience the grace of God to let go of the past and realize we're completely forgiven and the power of the Holy Spirit starts working in our lives and then we start being able to see that God makes these changes and all of a sudden we can start doing stuff that we're like, wow, that's amazing. How did that happen? It's because we're no longer working on our own effort. And now, in verse 31, Paul addresses our security. Okay, I get it, I'm forgiven. I get it, I can't make changes on my own. I can't control everything on my own. I get it, the Holy Spirit is working in my life. But where does my security come from? And he begins in verse 31, he says, remember this, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's a rhetorical question. If God is on your side, does it really matter what somebody else says? Does it really matter what someone else thinks is going to be the problems of the future? If we are insecure, I ask the question, are we looking in the wrong place for our security? If you're insecure and you're feeling anxious about everything in life, where's your security? Is it in your job? Is it in your finances? Is it in something in our society? Is it in somebody that you think is going to fix problems? Because if we keep thinking that these things of this world are going to solve it all, they never do, and we just keep learning the same thing over and over. It makes me think of you know, Charlie Brown when... The Lucy holds the football there, and Charlie Brown says, well, this time she's finally going to hold it, and he comes along, and she rips it out, and he falls flat on his back, and that's what we do when we put our faith in the wrong things. It didn't work yesterday, but maybe it will today. And so Paul wants us to understand that if our security is in God, we need to understand that God is for us. So does the rest of it matter? Now, you ask the question, well, how do I know that? You know, I go through life and so many people let me down. And we've all had that experience, if we're honest. There isn't a single one of us who hasn't found a person or an institution who hasn't let us down. Amen? Amen. Every one of us. Our family lets us down. Our friends let us down. Our jobs let us down. And if we're honest about ourselves, we've let other people down. Usually we can make an excuse for ourselves and we say, well, if they understood what I was going through, they would understand why I compromised. But the truth is, that's the experience we go through in life. And so Paul says, okay, so now how do we know that God is with us? What can we look at and say without any question that we are sure that God cares about us? And he points us to the cross. Because here's the thing, we talk about the cross as being the means of our salvation, and it is. It was on that cross that Jesus died and took our sins. But that cross, as Paul talks about it in his letter to the Romans, is something else. It's also a symbol. It's a symbol of God's faithfulness. It's a reminder that if we look at the cross at those times when we start focusing on everything else, we can remember what God did for us, and then we know that God is with us today. 
Listen to how Paul puts it in his letter. Verse 32. God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See what he does? He says, cross isn't just the means of my salvation, it's a reminder of God's faithfulness. We talk about the cross too often and sort of forget how powerful it is. If God died for you, if Jesus came in this world for you, if he gave his life for you, and you know that happened in the past, then why wouldn't he be present for you today? You can't have one without the other. Symbols then become important to us. I do the same thing when I stand here on a, usually a Saturday afternoon and work with a young couple who's getting married, and they stand in front of me, and now it comes time for the vows and the wedding ring. And I remember, remind the couples that these wedding rings that we wear are symbols. And do you know why we wear a wedding ring? Not for those times when we feel loving and caring about the other person. There's a symbol at those moments when we don't. They're the symbol to remind us at those times when we're insecure, that we see the ring, that we're reminded of the vow the other person takes. The problem that even happens with wedding rings is there are people who have been unfaithful to vows, and therefore people even get insecure about those. But in a healthy marriage, when people are faithful to their vows, and they can look at the ring at that moment, and when they start having some kind of doubt, they go, no, no, that person loves me, that person cares about me, no, I'm there for the other one. Well, if a wedding ring is just a human symbol, the cross is a divine symbol. God died for you. Jesus came for you. And now today, we worry about something else and we trust in something else. Paul says, go back and look at the symbol that reminds you that God is there and find your security in God. But what do we do? We settle. We know that that's what we should trust in. But then there's something else. And we put our faith and our trust in it. And it lets us down. We find a human thing that we think is so important to us Sort of the shiny object. I have a good friend who has a German shepherd. And I learned something about German shepherds. Did you know that there are American German shepherds and there are German German shepherds? I learned this from my friend. And American German shepherds are bigger and German German shepherds are smaller. So he had this German shepherd, he had a DNA tested, and he found out, oh, it's a German shepherd that actually has all of its ancestry from Germany. He got the German shepherd in Baltimore. And it was interesting how he got it. The dog had been raised by people who had an illegal dogfighting ring. And so this little puppy had the first eight months of its life were pure hell. In fact, it was so bad that the dog's tail got literally ripped off. And then the people who must have had the dogs and had the dogfighting ring figured out this wasn't the aggressive dog that they had hoped it would be, and they released it on the streets of Baltimore, and it now became a stray dog, and it got picked up by a pound, and he found out about it when it was taken care of in a kennel. And he and his wife heard about the dog, went and saw the dog, and made a decision that they were going to adopt this little puppy. Now, that puppy is now 12 years old and has an amazing life. In fact, for years, my friend used this dog as a therapy dog to go into nursing homes because it had such a nice, gentle personality. But here's the thing that he told me. He said, this poor little dog had a horrible start to life, and now it was in a, in a shelter, right? Not exactly the greatest place to be, but for the dog, for the first time in its life, it had security. 
And it felt good about the this, this shelter. And he said, so much so that as my wife and I are trying to take the dog out of there, it does not want to leave. It's all upset. It wants to go back to the dog shelter. Because finally, yeah, there's dogs barking around it, but it got three meals a day. Yeah, it's not exactly the most pleasant place to have a relationship with human beings or with other dogs, but at least it felt safe and secure in that little kennel. And he said, here I am trying to adopt this dog into a life that it cannot fathom, and it wants to stay in the shelter. That's what we do, folks, in our lives. God has so much better for us. God wants us to understand that we can trust in Him and have Him be our security, and we take the shiny object in our life and we think, but this time it's going to work, even though it never has before, and we put our faith in all the other things, and then we wonder, why does it fail? Here's the thing about God's security. Not only is it better, nothing can take it away. Hear me? Nothing can take away your security in Christ. There's nothing that you or anyone else can do to take God's love away from you. Remember that Savior who died for you? He didn't die to let you go. He died because he loved you. He didn't die because he wanted to let you think that somehow he was going to be with you for a while and then is going to abandon you in the middle of life. No, Paul tells us that nothing can take this security away that God gives us. That's why he goes on and he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? How about distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What a list. Man, some of those things we may feel like we face, but some of them we go, well, I'd never have to face that. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, dangerous sword. The interesting thing is Paul writes other letters. He gives us more letters than anyone else in the New Testament. And in 2 Corinthians, he talks about the things that he had to face as an apostle. This list is what he talks about that he faced in his own ministry. So he knows that these things, as big and bad, as awful as they may seem, he's already faced them, and he goes, they can't compare to the stuff that I have in Christ, and not one of them could ever take away God's love in my life. See what he's telling us? He's saying the very things that I faced that I feared about most are the very things that I discovered that when I went through them, God's love was still deeper than anything that I faced. Here's a question for us in our own lives. That's... Paul's list, what's your list? What are the things in your life that you say, well, Pastor Stan, but you don't understand. If I face this, how do I know I'm going to get through it? Well, the Bible teaches us that none of the things that we fear, none of the things that we are concerned about will ever separate us from the love of Christ. Shall financial insecurity? No. Can't do it. Well, how about loss of a job? Can't do it. Can't take away God's love and God's grace. How about difficulty at work? No, won't happen. How about a toxic work environment? No, God's still there getting you through it. How about a pandemic? Can a pandemic remove God's grace and God carrying us through? Absolutely not. You see, every single thing we face, how about a loss of a loved one? Nope, not going to happen. How about health problems in our own lives? Absolutely not. There's nothing and there's no one who can take away the security that we have in God if we will simply place our faith and our trust in Him and quit thinking that everything else is going to save us and thinking that everything else is going to give us security. 
Because what happens is we trust in God and then we trust in these human things to make us feel better and then they don't and then we say, where's God? And the scripture teaches to do it differently than that. Trust in the one you have for your salvation, but trust in him for your daily life and realize we will face difficulties in life and we, feel we will face problems. But every single time, if we turn them over to him and say, Lord, I don't get this. You take it. You walk with me in the midst of this. That's why Paul said earlier in his letter in verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is revealed in Christ. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying the reason I can trust in God is because what God offers me is greater than this stuff anyhow. That all the things that I think that are so important here in this world are nothing compared to my relationship with God. And if we don't understand that, we aren't understanding where true security comes from. Think of the Apostle Paul. The guy was a Roman citizen. So he could have been protected by the Roman government. He was also a Jewish Pharisee. Therefore, he could have done his work as a Pharisee and life would have been fine. But he comes and he has this experience with Christ and he realizes, oh my goodness, God is greater than any of these things that I have in life. And he willingly gives up all of that security to trust in Christ. And now, because he's a Christian at a time in which it's illegal to be a Christian and the persecution starts happening in the church, He's okay with it because he goes, you know what? All that stuff that I used to trust in, all of my job and all of my Roman citizenship and all of that, none of that can compare to what God's doing in my life. And not only that, I'm an eternal being and God's going to take me home someday. So it's a perspective. It's not that the things of this world don't matter. They absolutely matter. But God's love cannot be defeated. Now, I don't know about you, but when I get sick, I try to do something. You know, you got to do something with that time, right? So I'm at home, laying in the bed, drinking a lot of water, and lo and behold, my box set that I had ordered, Blu-ray of 1930s horror movies, arrived in the mail just in time. I hadn't timed it. It just happened to be there. I just had ordered them, and there they were, Frankenstein and Dracula and, and, and the Wolfman. And I decided to get to know Frankenstein really well. So I don't just have Frankenstein. I have every black and white movie of Frankenstein and I just absorbed myself in them as I was laying in bed, drinking water, getting better. And I learned something about Frankenstein. Frankenstein, of course, is the doctor and he creates a monster. Do you know what happens to the monster? You can't get rid of the monster. That's absolutely intricate to understanding Frankenstein. To understand who Frankenstein is, once he got created, you can't get rid of him. Let me demonstrate. In the first movie, it's called Frankenstein, which people will argue is Frankenstein better or Bride of Frankenstein. Actually, I think the third movie is better, but that doesn't matter. In the first movie, Frankenstein's burned to death. Do you know what that means? He comes back in The Bride of Frankenstein. So in The Bride of Frankenstein, they want to get rid of him, so the castle explodes... And now he comes back in Son of Frankenstein. At which point, they're finally going to get rid of this monster. So they take the monster and they cast it into a hot molten sulfur pit. And it only comes back in Ghost of Frankenstein. And that's where the statement is, you can't get rid of this monster. It's just going to keep being there. However, at the end of Ghost of Frankenstein, 
The monster's burned to death, only to come back, and Frankenstein meets the wolfman, at which point he's crushed and drowned, only to come back in the house of Frankenstein, and they're finally going to get rid of this monster. He sinks in quickstand, only to come back in House of Dracula. You get it? You can't get rid of the monster. Why do I say it? Well, Hollywood made it so you can't get rid of the monster, but God made it so you cannot get rid of his love. Doesn't matter what you face. It doesn't matter what we go through. God's love and God's grace will hold us, and the security is there always. No castle exploding or quicksand or drowning can take it away. Because God's grace and God's love is there for us. Our security is in God, not because of the fact that human things don't matter, but they can't compare. And once we place our faith and our trust and we learn to live a different way, we're able to face the struggles of this life and sometimes God works them out and we go, oh, I was concerned about that and it worked out anyhow. Or other times we see it as a means on which God makes us able to do ministry and help other people in a way that we couldn't have. But through it all, time and time again, we discover that God gets us through stuff that we can't even fathom on our own, but we don't have to fathom it on our own. Because it's God's love and God's security that we place our faith in. The problem is, why are 58% of the people in our country frustrated and worried about the future? Because our focus is on the wrong thing. We keep thinking that this thing or that thing is going to save us. And that's why Paul explains finally, having shown us where we need to put our security, understanding that God's grace and God's security can never, no matter what, be taken away from us, reminds us that once we finally trust in God all the time, we discover that we're more than conquerors. That's an amazing concept. Paul doesn't just say we conquer through Christ. We're more than conquerors. Verse 37, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You see, a conqueror is one who wins. But there's a problem with anybody who's a conqueror. They eventually get defeated. Now, unless I'm missing something, I haven't seen any Hittites recently. Have any of you noticed any of them? But they were a great ancient civilization. Or how about in Paul's day, they were worried about the Roman Empire. Well, that sort of fell to the Germans and the great Roman Empire is not around. Time and time again, we see that. We see the way in which the Greek Empire, under Alexander the Great, went across the world quicker than anybody else. Only by the time that Paul's there, there's some, some semblance of the Greek Empire, but it's no longer there because now the Romans are in control. We see the same thing today with sports teams. We put our faith and our trust and we love our sports teams and, and we come along to a team like the New England Patriots. Sorry, I don't mean to open up any deep wounds here, so if you need counseling afterwards, I'll meet you in my office. But let's be honest, in 2001 to 2019, the Patriots' dynasty won three out of four games. They kept winning Super Bowls, six Super Bowl championships. But the Patriots are not going to be in the Super Bowl this year. Great sports dynasties do come and they go. Now, the greatest of all sports dynasties actually is not the Patriots. And this is not undeniable because I have the microphone. But the greatest of all sports dynasties are the Celtics from 1957 to 1969. And it's not even an argument in the Cushing household. This is canon law. <laughs> that is because the Celtics won 11 championships in 13 years. Think about that, folks. 
They also won eight championships in a row. It was great growing up in North Dakota. My dad was from Massachusetts, and I became a Celtics fan. Lakers came from Minnesota. Minnesota Lakers went to Los Angeles. So all my friends were Minnesota Lakers, only now Los Angeles Lakers fans. And year after year, my team won. It was great. So what happens when you cheer for a dynasty. Out of those eight championships and 11 championships in 13 years, they have 14 retired numbers that go above the, the garden and the banners. They also had the greatest coach in the history of the NBA. Sorry to Phil Jackson, even though he's from North Dakota. Sorry about this one, but he is not the greatest basketball coach. That goes to Red Arbach. And in case you want to argue with me, we'll talk about it later, but I won't hear your arguments. Michael Jordan is not the greatest basketball player of all time. That would be Bill Russell. When somebody else wins eight championships in a row and 11 out of 13, we can have the discussion, but to me, I will never be convinced that anybody other than Bill Russell was the greatest. Wow, what an amazing dynasty. They are the same team that I was so frustrated with on Friday as I was watching them going, how in the world did they blow a 15-point lead and what's wrong with this team? because that's what happens to conquerors. They win, and you look at them, and they seem invincible, but today's success leads to tomorrow's failure. Whether we're talking about sports dynasties, whether we're talking about nations, whether we're talking about incredible stores like Sears. Haven't checked out any Sears recently, have you? But boy, did they knock out the competition in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. You see, all the human things that we create are here for a while and we think they're so amazing, but then they're gone. But Paul says that's not what it's like when you put your faith and trust because God is not a conqueror. When you put your trust in God, you're more than a conqueror. Because not only is God victorious today, not only was God victorious yesterday, He will be tomorrow and for all eternity. Amen? which is why we put our faith and our trust in God and not all these other things. Romans 8, 38 and 39. I'm sure that neither life nor death, Paul says, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's end where we started. 58% of Americans are fearful about the future. We have nothing to be fearful of. It's not that we deny the things of this world. We don't. It's not that we don't take them seriously. We do. It doesn't mean that we become foolish and, and say, oh, I don't have to be concerned or work with the stuff. Yes, we absolutely do. But we don't put our ultimate faith and trust in the things of this world. We put our faith and our trust in the one who gave his life for us. And that security only makes sense when you understand you're an eternal being. When you and I act as if our lives is only for the time that we're here, we miss the point. Because the Bible says there's only two things that last forever that we come in contact with. That's God's Word and human beings. God's Word and human beings. But we act like everything else is eternal. We act like all these other things are so much more important and, and move up on the priority list of our lives. But when we understand that we are eternal and we put our faith and our trust in that, then all the other things in life start to make sense. Now, I know that people have their favorite pastors that they like to listen to and they'll listen to them on podcasts. I actually have my favorite one also. And people will ask me, the problem is nobody ever seems to have heard of the person that I 
like, and his name is Rich Nathan. He's the pastor of the vineyard in Columbus, Ohio, or he was until recently when he just retired. But Pastor Rich was the founding pastor of a church that now has 7,000 people. And he gives amazing sermons. And when Regina and I used to go out and we would visit to see David and Laura when they were still back in college, we started attending the vineyard. And I started listening to his messages. And I've listened to him on podcasts. Sometime I'll, if I'm available, I'll tune in to their service on a Sunday morning. One of the times we were there, Pastor Rich gave a message and told a story that has always stuck with me. He said a good friend of his was the president of the largest bank in Columbus. He was a very active member of his church and very important member of his elder board. Problem is that his friend had come down with an illness and now was terminal and just received that news. And he was a young man. He was less than 50 years old. And now Pastor Rich, and you can imagine, if you're a pastor of 7,000 people, when people are in the hospital, you don't go visit them all. You can't do it. So if it's staff and a team that goes and does a majority of your visits. But in this visit, it was a good friend of his, and he absolutely wanted to go see his friend. And he said he was troubled. What can I say to this person? This guy's been on the top of his game. This guy's the head of a bank. This guy's making more money than probably anybody else in our church and just amazing life that he's got. And now it's all being taken away from him. And so Pastor Rich had his prayers and he said he stood outside the hospital room and got ready to walk in and wondering what to say. And he walked in and his friend had a big smile on his face and he goes, Pastor Rich, it's so good to see you. This is amazing. And Rich said, what's amazing? He said, well, you know, as the head of a bank, I can't really tell everybody about Jesus because they tell me, you know, if you're sharing your faith, that's kind of manipulative and you're, you're the bank president. And he said, so when I try to share my faith at work, people always would get upset. But he says, lo and behold, every single person that I've been praying for, they're all coming to visit me one after another and I've got a captive audience and I'm telling about what an amazing Savior I've got. And Pastor Rich said he was just blown away because his friend had life in perspective. It's not that he didn't want to live. He wanted to live. It's not that he wanted a terminal illness. He didn't. We don't want the things that are tough and bad and hard in life. We have to face them at times, and there are things that are struggles, but this guy had, had it figured out. He understood where his ultimate security was. He knew the cross, he knew the Savior, and he knew that you could never, ever, under any circumstances, no matter what he faced, take away where his ultimate security was. And that's my invitation to us this morning. If we're going to breathe in a different way to life, where are you putting your trust? Because as long as we put our trust and our faith in the things of this world, I will guarantee you only one thing. They will let us down. If we put our faith and our trust in another human being, they are going to let us down, and we will let each other down. But when we comprehend finally that it's not that the things of this world don't matter, they do. Every single one of them matter. God cares about so much that the Bible teaches us that he knows the number of hairs on your head, which is easier in his case with me than it is for you. But he cares intimately about your life. But he also wants you to understand that your ultimate faith is not to be in the things of this world, but to have the perspective that Paul was able to come to, that to live is Christ. God's got work for us to do, folks. 
We're going to leave here and we're going to come in contact with family and friends who are struggling and are discouraged and we have the opportunity to share God's love and encouragement with them. But the worst that can happen is death. And to have death is to gain. Because we were not just created for this day and for this moment. We are eternal beings. God came into this world to give his life for us not just to forgive our sins today to give us a better life, but that we could live eternally at home with our Savior. Where do we put our faith? And who do we trust in? Let's pray. Our gracious and loving God, help us at those times when the things of this world overwhelm us and the things around us want to take away our peace to regain it by putting our eyes back on Jesus. Help us to understand that You love us unconditionally and you've worked in our lives and you'll continue to do so. And at those moments when we get insecure and we wonder, do you really love us? Help us look to the cross and see that you didn't spare your own son. You certainly are not going to let us down today. Help us put our trust in you with the things that matter to us today. Whatever we're struggling with, wherever we're concerned, whatever it is that has got us anxious this day, help us give that to you. And may your grace, your peace, and your love that are all beyond anything that we can comprehend guard our hearts and our minds not only today but every single day of our lives and for all eternity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.